Hey everyone, this is Adam Ellenboss from Nightlight Astrology, and today we are going to take a look at this weekend's new moon in the sign of Scorpio. This is a new moon that'll be coming in late Sunday evening into Monday morning, depending on where you're uh, where you're at. And uh, so we're going to take a look at that new moon. It's a big one. It's in the uh, kind of the last 10 degree stretch of the sign of Scorpio with an opposition to Uranus. Of course, Mars is just separating from an opposition to Uranus. Today, we're going to be focusing less on the Mars-Uranus opposition and more on the new moon itself, an exploration of the sign of Scorpio, um, and some other contributing factors that I've been looking at because uh, in 2024, in my yearly masterclass series, I will be presenting on the fixed stars. This will be my first time ever teaching the fixed stars outside of my horary program where I use them very lightly. Uh, it's something that I've been, over the years, I'm very slow when it comes to incorporating new theoretical material into the way that I do astrology because I like to really get to know the symbols and uh, the things I'm working with before throwing in new things. Um, that's just my my approach. Nothing, not saying anyone else has to be that way. Um, and so as I'm teaching this class on fixed stars in 2024, I've been studying the fixed stars privately and have also been doing some crossover work with fixed stars, tarots, uh, the tarot, and of course, um, the decans. I've also been working with bound rulers a little bit. Not that I plan on being any kind of expert, and certainly I think there are people out there right now doing this work at a very much higher level than I'm doing. So sort of breaking new ground for me. So it's really been pretty fun. Um, but on that note, we will be looking at third decan symbolism today, which is the symbolism that belongs to the last 10 degrees of Scorpio. We'll be doing some crossover with the tarot that uh, has been linked to that last 10 degrees of Scorpio where the new moon is taking place. We're going to be looking at the symbolism of a fixed star that is close to this new moon in the sign of Scorpio. We're going to be looking at the term symbolism of Jupiter. This new moon takes place in the bound or term of Jupiter. So we'll be looking at that. We will also be looking at the symbolism of the I Ching. I cast the I Ching in relation to this new moon, and there's some really nice symbolism there. And then finally, we'll be working through just standard archetypal symbolism uh, around the new moon, especially the placements of Mars and Uranus, which we've already done a lot of work on this week. So if you missed that, you could also go back and get a lot more about Mars and Uranus, which is coming through over the weekend, and we've already unpacked at length. That is our agenda for today. I hope you guys will enjoy this kind of novel approach, which I will likely be taking around new moons um, or in certain signatures here or there uh, as we go. Of course, it's, you guys have seen me in the past incorporate the I Ching and tarot occasionally. It's not like anything new, but a little bit of uh, new stuff with a fixed star that we're throwing in uh, and stuff like that. So anyway, before we get into it, don't forget to like and subscribe, share your comments and reflections in the comment section. It really helps the channel to grow when you guys do that. If you're new to the channel, welcome. I hope you'll enjoy today's talk. Transcript of any of my talks can be found at the website, nightlightastrology.com. On that note, we are in the midst of uh, promoting the upcoming program, Ancient Astrology for the Modern Mystic. This begins on November 18th, go to the courses page on nightlightastrology.com, click the first year program, and you can learn more about it. it starts on the 18th, so we're almost ready to start class. Uh, can't wait to have you guys there. You can see that there are 30 online webinars that are held over the course of the year. This is a, an immersion in ancient Hellenistic astrology, and um, we also have uh, guest lectures that come in outside of our 30 classes. Everything's recorded. If you can't make it live, you can watch from our class website or download everything, all of the materials for our course on the class website. It's lifetime access. You can go at your own pace or, or again, or attend live. We have breakout study sessions with tutors, a forum discussion staffed with tutors. So there's lots of support for you built into the program. Lots of bonus material, a workbook that you can go through, optional readings outside of class, additional videos. It's really there for people who want to go professional or people who are just doing it because it's your hobby. You can kind of pick the track and depth that works for you with the program. There's an early bird payment, saves you $500 off. There are There's a payment plan. You can spread the payments out over... 12 months. And then there's need-based tuition assistance. So if you're someone who wants to take the program, but you're on a fixed or limited income, we understand that people sometimes need a little bit of help to make sure they're not hurting themselves to do something like this. So we don't think people should have to, you know, only one type of person economically should be able to take an astrology course. So we have that option there for people who might need a little bit of help to make their desire to study astrology possible. Please do use that. We're very glad to work with you. 
we do have spots left, so I uh, hope that you guys will take advantage of that. The other thing I'm promoting right now, as you guys know, is my relationship with Astrology Hub. Astrologyhub.com is a great place to find accessible readings. Uh, the wait time for my readings is, I don't know, I think it's about eight or nine months at this point. We've got, it's gotten a little bit better. We've tried to sharpen it so that it's not a year, but uh, it still is a long wait. So I've been promoting Astrology Hub because I think it's a great alternative. I get people all the time saying, you know, I don't want to wait quite as long as your wait time is. Um, what would you, who would you recommend I get a reading with? Well, this is a service that I think would work for you. If you go to astrologyhub.com, they've got plenty of cool things to check out. By the way, I've taught for them and worked for them in the past. So have a lot of alumni from my programs or uh, teachers that we've had on our staff that have worked for them. If you uh, click on their readings tab in particular, you can actually take a quiz that will match you with one of their staff astrologers, many of whom have taught at Nightlight, studied at Nightlight, or are friends or colleagues of mine. So um, check them out. You can get matched with an astrologer. You can book in a lot of different formats that they have available, which is really cool, very flexible. Um, I know a lot of these astrologers uh, personally, and they're all wonderful souls. I like the emphasis that they place on a spiritual approach to astrology. This is not just a celestial gossip column that we're tuning into to get more you know, enmeshed in the drama of our lives. It's something we're doing to live more consciously. And I think all of their staff members really get that. And that's why I appreciate their approach so much. The promo code you can use if you want to save a little bit, 15% off when you book a reading is Adam15. That is available till the end of November. So you should definitely take advantage of that and uh, check out the good other work that they have available on their website. Again, I couldn't recommend them highly enough if you're looking for a reading and you need it kind of sooner than what my wait time provides at the moment. I do think it's worth waiting for, you know, I think I'm fantastic and it's worth waiting for and all that, but also I do get it. If you need a reading sooner, check them out. In the new year, I'm also promoting this because we are in the process of building a service like this ourselves, but until that's up and running, which will be sometime in the new year, um, I want to make sure that people have a resource available. So I partnered with them in the last part of this year to make sure that we had something we could point you to. All right. Now, after a little bit of a lengthy intro here, we are off to the races to talk about this new moon. Let's put the real-time clock up on the screen. You're going to see my chart looks a little bit different today. That's because I have the bound rulers up on the screen, and we're going to take a look at that as part of our signature. You will notice, for example, that the... Uh, Here's the sun and moon, and their little hash marks fall into the bound of Saturn. Now, I have a chart that I use for my bound rulers. You can kind of see it's like a laminated chart that I use. And we uh, we use this table in our uh, programs as well. But when you go to Scorpio, um, you'll see... Oh, and did I... Actually, I might have I might have messed this up. Okay, so let's just see. I thought it was Jupiter, but if I need to adjust on the fly, I will. Um, let's see. So yeah, from, looks like from 19 to, okay, let's see. Hold on just one second. Let me get my head on straight here. Sorry guys. Uh, here, let's just pause. Nope. I was right. Sorry. It is Jupiter. So we're looking at the bound of Jupiter. I thought for a second, I was like, did I read that wrong? And I was like, nope. Cause I, I looked at my program, but not at my little list because I've been working with this programming feature on solar fire that shows you where the bounds are located, but you kind of have to do it by eye. So I was like, let me just double check. I should have done that before I started. Anyway, it's the bound of Jupiter. So we're going to be looking at this new moon in Scorpio closely conjoined Mars and Scorpio, both opposite Uranus. Let's put that in. We've talked about that at length this week. You can see here is the opposition to Uranus that the new moon has that Mars is just separating from. The new moon is in the bound of Jupiter. And I've been looking a lot at bound rulers to get a sense of the kind of, the, the way that I think of bound rulers, every dignity category has almost like a philosophical rationale behind it that helps you understand what power, what kind of power that ruler has over another planet. For example, what is the difference between a domicile ruler, an exaltation ruler, a triplicity ruler, a, a bound ruler, a decan or face ruler? They all have kind of a different rationale. Um, I look at bound or term rulers in terms of Saturn as a kind of limiting principle that the uh, planet in the bound of that other planet is uh, somehow confined or conformed to. So when you think of this new moon, in other words, we're thinking of something that's also bound up in the karma of Jupiter, just to kind of put it, you know, generally. Jupiter, of course, is retrograde in the sign of Taurus, 
And at the beginning of the next new moon cycle in Sagittarius, we'll be turning direct. Um, it, when the, the next new moon, in other words, comes through Sag, within the early, I think it's about maybe halfway through the next cycle that starts in Sag, Jupiter will turn direct as the ruler of that next moon cycle. I believe that that's going to figure prominently into how we understand this moon cycle, and I'll say more about that in a minute. But anyway, we're going to be looking also at the fact that this new moon falls not only in Scorpio with Mars opposite Uranus, which we'll close out today with, but we're going to look at this also in terms of the fact that this is landing into the third decan of uh, Scorpio, which means it's falling in the last 10 degrees of the sign. Uh, predating even the Hellenistic tradition, the Egyptians had a way of looking at 36 sections of the ecliptic circle or the zodiac, uh, and there were planetary deities and symbolic images uh, sort of alchemical images that were associated with each of the 10 degrees of the of what we now use as the zodiac. That system was sort of grafted onto and added to the um, horoscopic language of astrology that was developed um, a little bit later. And so it it's always been, it's had an interesting history as a part of the system of astrology. Anyway, I find it to be, it's been a part of my practice that I've known about for a long time. I mean, it was I don't want to say like 2018 or so that we had Austin Kopic come to my school and give a talk on the Deccans that was really memorable. If you guys know his work, he wrote a book called 36 Faces. I'm going to draw on that today as a way of looking at the, the, the fact that the new moon is landing in this last Deccan. We've had Spencer Michaud come and teach a few times on the Deccans and tarot and uh, fixed stars. There's an interesting crossover between tarot, fixed stars, and the Deccans that are pretty interesting. So I'm throwing in some little esoteric concepts today just for as a way of having fun. We're also going to bring in the symbolism of a fixed star. I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm going to give it a shot. Zubin Eskamali. I think that's how you pronounce it. But it was interesting to read about this fixed star that the new moon is falling within close proximity of. Uh, there was another one too, but the other one... Um, it was, I found that some fixed stars, when you study them, I'll just be honest, are like sort of terrifyingly negative. <laughs> and, and I feel like I always, I gravitate toward working with fixed stars where it feels like there's a, a description or a set of working mythologies that contrast light and dark, as opposed to just being like, you'll be beheaded. <laughs> if, you, if you've ever studied fixed stars, you know what I'm talking about. So anyway, uh, we'll be looking at the term of Jupiter. Jupiter. I brought in the I Ching, cast an I Ching today, and then we're going to look at Mars and Uranus to close out. So let's get, let's get into it. Those are the things we're going to look at, five things to watch for, and starting with the third Deccan symbolism. So I'm going to read you what Austin Kopic says in his book on the Deccans, which I think is fascinating. If you, I'm just going to stop staring so I can show you his book. 36 Faces, the History, Astrology, and Magic of the Deccans. I believe it's out of print. Um, because on Amazon, it certainly says that it's, it's out of print. So I don't know that you can even get a copy of this. You might want to check in with Austin on his website. Maybe he's got copies there or a new print edition is coming out or something. So Scorpio three refers to a new moon taking place in the last 10 degrees of Scorpio. We've got this at 20 and change. So we're going to read this, this in this kind of an interesting image that he has here. You can see it's the crow. Uh, so and that may or may not be meaningful to you, but on the surface, what occurs in this Deccan appears as a loss. Love is revealed as an illusion, a mere matter of selfish projection. Yet it is not a loss, for the desire and the capacity for its satisfaction never truly depended on anyone or anything else. Yet to transform disillusionment into satisfaction, a potent operation is necessary. I'm going to pull up a tarot card that he associates with this Deccan now to show you as I'm reading. And um, this is one you probably have worked with before. It's the Seven of Cups. <clears throat> the enemies and lovers seen in the second face of Scorpio part ways in the third. This face pictures the alchemical separation of desire from the person or object to which it was formerly attached. Though the lover has gone, desire remains. In a sense, we are returned to the loneliness and hunger of the first face of Scorpio, but with an important difference. The hunger pictured in the first face was moving towards union with its object, while the desire that re-emerges in the third face has known union and now departs from it. It is a place of separation and transformation. Fulfillment comes, but not in the manner first desired. 
The Rider Waite tarot card assigned to this deck and shows a man and before him a cloud in which dance visions. In this mist float chalices loaded with fantastic images. Book T calls this card illusionary success, while Crowley in his Book of Thoth calls the card debauchery. Both texts speak of the actions which proceed from being enamored of an illusion and unwilling to let go of an object of desire. The image of the card clearly suggests a man beholden to his own fantasies. Fantasies are, indeed, the proper object of this face's action. These desires dominate and obsess him. Though in truth he is both their mother and father, he is their playing here, not vice versa. He is their plaything here, not vice versa. The same relationship is implied by the image in the three books of occult philosophy, which shows, quote, a man bowed downward upon his knees and a woman striking him with a staff. The woman beating the man with a staff represents his desires, as in the Seven of Cups, they dominate him. Agrippa goes on to state that it signifies drunkenness, fornication, wrath, violence, and strife. Controlled by passions, this figure's activity is base and thoroughly deserving of the title Crowley gives to this decan, debauchery. Meanwhile, the Picatrix offers another permutation of this dynamic. While this picture is relatively benign, a horse and a rabbit with it, the description states that it is the face of evil works and taste, and joining oneself with women by force and with them being unwilling. Here the man attempts to rape his own desire, forcing a satisfaction which would not occur naturally. This ultimately, this is ultimately a face of wrestling with own, one's own desire nature, for it leads one inevitably back to confrontation with the nature of desire itself. It is the property of no one else. The floating cloud of fantasies must be recognized as wholly one's own. The formula by which this is accomplished is the separation of desire from all external objects of lust. It is a matter of the transformation of a desire rather than its immediate gratification and sense objects. Desire, denied its objects, rebels and tries to dominate the person in which it resides, resulting in the type of unbalanced pleasure-seeking described by Agrippa and pictured in the Picatrix. But this debauchery is not the proper formula for this face, but a rebellion against it. The process truly described is the dissolution or putrefication of desires back into their raw, unstructured form, their prima materia. The succubus wears crow wings, the corvus of the negredo. This phase can thus be used to return unfulfilled attachments and desires to their beginning. We bury the corpse of past loves and wait for the flowers to grow from their graves. But such dissolutions take time, and the ghosts of a desire which haunt this face are real, and the ghosts of desire which haunt this face are real. They are projections of our energy split off into quasi-autonomous phantoms. These projections have the capacity to obsess like that of succubi or incubi. When desire's hungry ghosts have finally been laid to rest, the compost is complete and a rich loam results. In the grave soil of yesterday's love, anything can grow. This face is thus a formula of liberation. And that's what I liked about this one, is that this is going to link so nicely to a new moon that's also opposite Uranus. For if we were not capable of laying our desires to rest, returning them to pure energy, we would be enchained forever, prisoners of what we once held dear. There is a contradictory quality to the action seen in this face for each desire buried in the grave earth is like a seed and from it a fresh shoot will inevitably arise. This face thus bears a strong resemblance in Austin Osman Spare's primary sorceress formula wherein a desire once fully developed is released and forgotten. Buried in the soil of the world it returns to the magician alive and fully enfleshed. Though rife with heartbreaking and violent images this face is ultimately one of liberation and a great satisfaction. If one chases ghosts which flit about it, there will be naught but debauchery. If, however, one releases what no, one no longer possesses, what returns is a satisfaction superior to anything previously dreamt. Those pictured in this face are challenged to wholly possess their own desired nature and find complete sovereignty over its continual death and rebirth. So first of all, that's, I, I was like, ooh, this, this text. And of course, I, I just feel like Austin, his style itself is like very scorpionic. And, um, but a really rich text that, um, that I like for that reason. Um, if you're not into that kind of writing, it's a little dark, um, but I don't think in a malicious way. Uh, so apologies if that was sort of heavy first. I know some people are like, you know, I've read stuff from him before and people have been like, that's too heavy for me. <laughs> so like, I get it. If that's you don't, you know, it's don't take it as the gospel. It's just a really interesting take on the last decan of Scorpio where our new moon is falling. 
What I find compl com very compelling about that is that let's look back at the Deccan, the card associated with the Deccan. Here we have the Seven of Cups. And what I like about this is that we're, we're looking at, in Scorpio, we're really working very deeply with desires and their shadows. And that can go in two different ways in my experience. The one desire shadow of Scorpio is the thing we want that somehow we think is bad, but it's not. And you have to somehow allow for the taboo, the superstitious, fearful, foreboding um, qualities around what you desire to be released. That the real illusion is the illusion that what we desire is bad or will sink us somehow. It's like, just let yourself love what you love, even if it's dark and intense. Um, even, even if there is... Uh, a, a, a tremendous kind of yin, um, obsessive, you know, fiery power behind what you love and how you love things. You, if you repress it, it, it turns into a monster. And I find that that is a, like something that I've seen come up in uh, past readings where I've incorporated the tarot. So for many years, occasionally, if, it, if it's felt appropriate, especially if my client's really into tarot, I'll bring in cards into a reading. And for many years in the Kickstarter, I literally did hundreds of tarot readings as reward gifts. Whenever I see the seven of cups come up, I just think to myself, there's two different things. One, your desires could be problematic, as in they are not realistic, or they're going to undermine you, or they're going to take you down a dark path. And it has to, has to do with starting to see clearly and getting some like being becoming disentangled from your desires in the way that they will dominate you. And if you have that power, then the actual Shakti of your desire doesn't go away, but it's transmuted into something either more realistic or healthy or fertile or, you know, capable of bringing aligned things into your life. So there's like a transmutation of what the desire is aimed at, but not ridding yourself of the desire itself. And that's a part of the seven of cups that I've observed many times. Um, same thing with Scorpio energy, just in general. Uh, on the other hand, there's also the other part where it's like the desire itself is, is uh, you know, um, something that you fear and that you think is bad, but it's not. It, it, you go, well, I, sh I shouldn't, I shouldn't have this deep of an, uh, you know, you know, I shouldn't love so deeply or intensely, or my passion or my sexual energy shouldn't be so strong or something like that. And it's like, no, the problem is actually the the repressive part. And so sometimes the I've seen the seven of cups come up when it's like we're we're scared of the power of of fantasy, imagination, romance. That there's something that we we really want or desire, but we're we're scared that there's something false about it. Um, and sometimes that'll actually come up too if if you work with reversals when seven of cups is reversed. But anyway, um, so what I like about this new moon in this last decan of Scorpio broadly speaking, is that we're working with um, kind of like an advanced stage of, of desire and what it has brought us. We're, maybe this new moon cycle will bring us the ability to reflect upon our uh, deepest desires and whether they've been uh, aligned or not. and Or we're able to reflect on those things that we want or desire and the fears that we have surrounding them and whether those fears are legitimate or not, you know, whether we're... Um, holding ourselves back out of some kind of, um, you know, fear that we'll be punished for, for loving something or desiring something. What I like around this, when you pair it with the Uranian symbolism, which we'll get to in a minute, is the feeling that whatever direction you go in, liberation can come as a result. So if you examine your desires and you find that they've been undermining you, they've been unhealthy, they haven't given you what you thought they would, then it's time to let them go. There's a liberation there. That's the opposition with Uranus. On the other hand, if you're finally going to step toward them and let go of fears that have been holding you back from pursuing your desires because you've been superstitious or afraid or there's some kind of taboo, you know, some, some repression or something, then the positive or constructive use of, of that energy can happen and similarly will be experience as a kind of liberation. So I feel like that's something to work with from the Deccan symbolism that doesn't feel, you know, sometimes I'm I'm hesitant to use things like Deccans, fixed stars, even asteroids, you know, because 
I don't want it to introduce superfluous information that could be accessed more directly and more economically through just talking about Scorpio or just talking about, you know, uh, the new moon opposite Uranus. Because oftentimes I think we then introduce the idea that, you know, you, you need five or six more complicated things in order to get the accurate astrology. Most of the time you don't. Most of the time, like in a sense, a new moon in Scorpio opposite Uranus could tell exactly the same story that I just told going into this third decan reading of Austin's text. But at the same time, I find that it's interesting to add in uh, additional layers of symbolism as my sort of, uh, I don't know, as my bandwidth increases, as my ability to hold uh, various levels or layers of symbolism increases. And, and, you know, adding some little nuances or details with the mythology or the symbols of the decans can sometimes also just help us access other images and other valuable ways of turning the jewel. So I almost think about it like, I mean, this is just, I'm just pontificating here, but like, I almost think about it like, you know, if we're constantly turning the jewel of an archetypal combination like Scorpio Taurus or like new moon in Scorpio opposite Uranus or something that adding in decans or bound rulers or fixed stars or whatever can sort of be like a, interesting ways of making the light bounce off the jewel. They're like additional tools that can help pick up on the a particular side that the light bounces off the jewel or something. So when used in that way, I find that they can be really fun. Anyway, that's a sort of, that's a, I, di I digress, but I hope that's just as a, a kind of meta conversation about craft. Okay, sorry about that. I hit a button and somehow it ejected me out of the studio. That's funny. Um, all right, so <clears throat> we're going to go on and we're going to talk about Zubines Kamali. <laughs> Asked me to repeat that again. <laughs> I could not. So uh, fixed star Zubines Kamali, uh, which lands at uh, about 19 degrees of Scorpio, 1923. And we have uh, this new moon at 2043. So it's just about a degree off. Um, I'm going to read to you a little bit about it from uh, a website that I enjoy called astrologyking.com, which is a great catalog of fixed stars. Um, so Fixed star Zubines Kamali is a single star that marks the northern scale of the balance, the Libra constellation. Now we're talking about a sidereal, you know, the, the constellations are in a sort of being sidereally oriented relative to a uh, tropical zodiac, right? So that doesn't mean that this new moon is in the constellation of Libra. That's not exactly what it means. It's a little tricky to explain. Maybe we'll do a video on it sometime, but so... Uh, okay, so it is a pale emerald star situated in the northern scale of the balance. Its proper name is Zubines Kamali from Al-Zuban Al-Shamalia, the northern claw, a reference to the ancient celestial sphere in which Libra was omitted and Scorpio occupied originally, symbolically called the full price. Zubines Kamali, according to Ptolemy, it is of the nature of Jupiter and Mercury, but later writers have considered it similar to Jupiter and Mars, and Alvidus likens it to Mars and sextile to Jupiter. It gives good fortune, high ambition, beneficence, honor, riches, and permanent happiness. I don't know about permanent. <laughs> anyway, a blue-white star in the northern balance of the scales also called, called Scale North. This star imparts to its native ambition, good fortune, honors, wealth, happiness, high ambition, Psychic preferment. That's the one I want to focus on. I think that's interesting. The star is much noted for particular sharpness of mind and intellect, and there is often a very powerful psychic quality there also, or psychotic if the planets and aspects are of a harsh enough nature for good or ill will go to the extremes of what a human mind can achieve. The northern scales has a Jupiter-Mercury nature and therefore positive properties tied up with the MC and Ascendant or well-placed stellar bodies. Northern scales are credited with helping the native to gain honor and distinction. When connected with Mercury, they are supposed to make the native studious. In good position, the star will arouse, above all things, spiritual and mental force. The conjunction with Sun, Moon, or Jupiter favors uh, blah, blah, blah. It goes on. So, uh, Zubines Kamali, uh, here's a, it's associated with some people. 
Psychic entertainer Uri Geller has a conjunction of Moon, Venus, and Jupiter. Charles Manson has the Sun, Venus, but uh, has also square to Saturn from those planets. And so he mentions that that is an example of it turning the psychic mental sharpness into something more psychotic. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio has the sun Venus with a trine uh, to Saturn, making his hard edges more lovable or something like that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Valerie Solanalis, the radical feminist who tried to kill Andy Warhol, had moon conjunct part of fortune. Uh, he says, sent psychotic with neurotic quincunx aspects to Sun, Mercury, and Ascendant. I don't know about any of this, right? I'm just reading it. <laughs> uh, Li Lindy England gained an immortal name for all the wrong reasons at Abu Gra Ghraib prison. Mm -hmm. I don't know who that is or what he's talking about here, but then he goes on to talk about her, and he talks about Gandhi with Venus Mars on Zubinesque Kamali, but being opposite Pluto marks an intense struggle against powerful forces. Uh, and he mentions psychiatrist Aloy Alzheimer combined the spiritual and mental forces of north scale with a conjunction to Jupiter, north node, and vertex point. Trying to medicine man Chiron helped him gain credit for identifying Alzheimer's disease. Interesting. So he goes on and mentions a bunch more. But the, the point that I really liked was the part about mental force and power that tends to bring some kind of good fortune. But it could be also mental force and power that has like a dark side to it. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, also that it, it almost talks about this star having a relationship with some kind of psychic ability. The reason for that is now I'm not just saying, Ooh, because I think those topics in and of themselves are so enamoring, but rather because look at what is happening in the sky in the context of this moon cycle. So I'm going to go, forward here and let me get to the new moon here we go i'm going to show you the chart again and i just want to show you something that i find really interesting so uh <clears throat> so here is the new moon and one of the things that's happening around this new moon is we have two things one is that um before our, we've even gotten to the full moon, Mars and the sun will enter Sagittarius. And especially with Mars in a Jupiter-ruled sign, um, you're going to have Mars square to Saturn, both in Jupiter-ruled signs. And that's going to be happening as Mercury goes into the square with Neptune. Now, the early part of the cycle, Mercury also squares Saturn from Sagittarius to Pisces. Um, when you have a strong signature around mental and intellectual forces that can bring prominence or like success, um, but you also have the potential for those same powers to be turned towards something malefic or dark. And then you see that we have Mercury uh, square Saturn in Jupiter ruled signs, Mars square Saturn in Jupiter ruled signs, and then Mercury square Neptune in Jupiter ruled signs. You get the feeling that this cycle could include uh, people like charismatic figures who have dark mental persuasive powers. Um, you also get the feeling that this cycle ahead could be associated with mental or emotional imbalances, the topic of mental or emotional health. Um, little known, you know, we, we don't discuss this so much, but I think there's, and I'm not the first person who said this, so I'm not like uh, claiming that, but I think that people who have been through traumatic events those traumatic events often also serve as points of psychic initiation where your mental, intellectual, uh, spiritual radar uh, becomes very, very sensitive. And sometimes that's a terrible thing that you're working to turn the volume down on, you know, for a long time. Other people, for one reason or another, are able to take that initial wound and also receive something of a psychic opening or initiation that came from it. And I wonder if that that whole dynamic isn't going to be an interesting part of the conversation in the month ahead. Mental health, um, extremes, psychosis. I'm, not, I'm using that word very generically here. I'm not a doctor or anything, but like, where do people lose the plot mentally and emotionally? The Oftentimes the people who lose the plot mentally and emotionally are also very smart, very bright, very compelling, very persuasive, very magnetic in the power of their speech or 
their like emotional powers of persuasion. So when I looked at that Zubin Eskamali symbolism, I just wondered it, whether it's in our own personal lives or it's in the people around us, what are we going to be, how's the conversation going to be uh, evolving in the next month uh, when it comes to mental and emotional health, uh, the maybe elements of like fanaticism, charismatic thinking, um, you know, psychic gifts or psychic intuitive powers um, and, you know, our ability to hold those things or the feeling that we're sort of being tortured by them. So I feel like when you look at that fixed star at the opening of the cycle and then look at Mars and Sagittarius, Mercury and Sagittarius, you know, both hitting squares to Saturn, eventually to Neptune, just go, yeah, this could be a cycle where mental and intellectual gifts and powers are heightened, but some of that may also bring up instabilities. Okay. I hope that makes sense. All right. So, uh, <clears throat> goes along of course, with that tarot card that we were also looking at. And remember that tarot card was, uh, had, uh, the, the power of illusion as a, as a real force operating what I desire and, and how realistic it is. Um, there's something around that in the last decade of Scorpio and in the association of the seven of cups. So it's just an interesting, um, interesting piece of evidence to consider, right? All right. How about the term of Jupiter symbolism? So now let's return to the chart and let's take a look at the term of Jupiter. I think this is another fascinating way of, uh, yeah, just uh, using a different tool to illuminate some of the uh, images. Oops, here we go. Let's go back to the new moon. So here's the new moon in Scorpio. Uh, actually, let me back this up by some hours so we can get the actual. Okay, so here it is in that uh, bound of Jupiter. What I find interesting is let's now watch what happens to Jupiter. So Jupiter is opposing the new moon in Taurus and it is retrograde by whole sign opposition, not by degree. If Jupiter in Taurus represents a kind of, um, you know, the, the, the desires in Scorpio are complicated, you know, as opposed to the desires in Taurus that always sort of cloak themselves in golden sunlight. Um, and of course, the shadow of Scorpio is Taurus and Taurus Scorpio. Um, Jupiter in Taurus retrograde may represent something we desire, but that is slow in coming or has been delayed or a set of desires that we're having to revise or reconsider, uh, something we're trying to grow, some area of fertility that is um, permanent or temporarily like delayed or set back. You know, so some area, like a field that we're trying to grow something in that's like, you know what, right now I'm just not going to grow. There's some process of delay or revision or of um, having to wait or of reconsidering something or something turning in a different direction. All maybe Jupiter retrograde symbolism basically explained. Now, what happens as the cycle goes on? This bound ruler of the new moon would suggest that we are, again, there might be some correlation to something that we have desired that is not turning out as we suspected that we're having to wait for or uh, adjust our expectations about. So if we take the cycle forward, the sun and Mars and Mercury will all move into Jupiter's sign. And then as the cycle goes on, we're going to see that in December, the new moon comes through in Sagittarius on December 13th. That's the next new moon in Sag. Jupiter is its ruler. So what's happening as that cycle gets into right around, um, uh, get, getting right before the full moon, we see that Jupiter is going to right as up because the full moon comes through December 27th. And then right after the full moon, Jupiter stations and turns direct right about by December, by January 1st, Jupiter's direct. So in other words, the last lunar cycle of the year, takes us, it has the ruler as Jupiter and Jupiter finally turns direct in the, at the very beginning of January. So the point that I'm making here is that this cycle and having a bound ruler of a retrograde Jupiter, it seems to be withheld or prohibited from um, the satiation of its desires. And there could be a kind of manic, restless, 
uh, quality, some it, the, the inability to get what we want or the, the, in a, the, the frustration with things not being as we want them to be could lead to a lot of volatility mentally and emotionally. Um, but then uh, with the next cycle in, Ju in Jupiter's sign, we experience Jupiter turning direct. And to me, that sequence is really important because if you like, okay, let's just go back a little bit here to the new moon and we'll look at the, so uh, let's get the, the, here we go. So we're going to get that new moon, just a look of the new moon here. Um, and the new moon will, I believe, be in the bound of, of Mercury. Uh, which is really interesting because we're switching from a Jupiter uh, term ruler in the last cycle to a Mercury ruled term ruler. And um, what I find interesting about that, let me just double check with my chart. <clears throat> so if you go into, this is December 12th, let's see, we're at 20 degrees Sagittarius. I believe that's going to be Mercury's bound. Yeah, so that's Mercury's bound. So Mercury will have Mercury will have the um, uh, the rulership, uh, the bound rulership. And what's Mercury doing? Mercury's about to go through a retrograde, and it will take Mercury. If you look at this retrograde, right, Mercury will dip back into the sign of Capricorn or of uh, excuse me of Sagittarius. So it dips back into the uh, sign of Sagittarius and it does so right as Jupiter's turning direct. So I, I just, I think that that's just a really, it, so it, it moves into Jupiter's rulership in the retrograde and Jupiter turns direct. There's some, to me, like what I see here is like the adjustment of our desires, it, to put it really simply. If you look at the term of Jupiter symbolism or the, the, the the fact that the new moon in Scorpio is in the term of Jupiter and that the next cycle, everything switches as Jupiter turns direct. And again, if you look at the bound ruler of the next cycle being in Mercury sign, Mercury retrogrades back into Jupiter sign and Jupiter turns direct. You get this feeling that there's like a modification or, or um, revisioning taking place of a desire that got frustrated that we couldn't get something we wanted. So we have to adjust our expectations or a delay or a period of waiting is finally over and we start moving forward. But we've also got new information with which to go forward in a slightly new way. We've adjusted the plans. We've not discarded them completely or we've discarded them and replaced them with a wiser set of desires. So I'm just looking at those details and thinking that's pretty interesting. Let's talk about the I Ching because I cast the I Ching for this new moon as well. And uh, this one I think is um, pretty fascinating and adds another layer uh, of intrigue. So I'm going to pull up that right now. So the first hexagram was hexagram 61. I'll actually type this out in case you want to spend some time with it. Hexagram 61 is sometimes referred to as... Uh, inner truth, and um, the uh, it's called Chung Fu, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but um, inner truth. I'm going to read you the judgment because it's pretty interesting. It has wind over lake. The wind blows over the lake and stirs the surface of the water. Thus, visible effects of the invisible manifest themselves. Isn't that interesting? Um, this hexagram, I have been told before by someone who knows a lot more about the I Ching than I do, uh, sort of a teacher mentor figure in my life, that this hexagram is much like the activity of divination itself, that you, as the wind blows over the water, it's something invisible that's showing itself on the surface of something visible, and that's the way spirit speaks through oracles. And so... Um, I think it's really fascinating that in this, that the, when I asked, what about this new moon cycle, that the first meaning it gave was that something invisible will speak over the presence of something visible. And if you pay attention, it will tell you what's going on, or it will reveal the truth, or it will tell you where to go. Um, so I love that because remember, this new moon cycle also had that signature of psychic um, and like, like heightened psychic and, and mental activity. I just thought, yeah, this is a this is a cycle where if we're paying attention, 
we can receive signs, omens, gestures from the invisible in the visible, whether it's dreams or symbols or astrology or whatever we work with. And those will give us some sense of where to go. But what I find even more interesting is the changing line. Line number three was changing. Six in the third place means he finds a comrade. Now he beats the drum. Now he stops. Now he sobs. Now he sings. Here, the source of a person's strength lies not in themselves, but in their relation to other people. No matter how close to them they may be, if his center of gravity depends on them, they are inevitably tossed to and fro between joy and sorrow, rejoicing to high heaven and sad to death. This is the fate of those who depend on an inner accord with people they love. Here we have only the statement of the law that this is so. Whether this condition is felt to be an affliction or the supreme happiness is left to the subjective verdict of the person concerned. So I love that. He, the, 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 this line illustrates this idea that we ride a roller coaster of highs and lows because we are relational beings whose happiness is wrapped up in other people. And, um, that could be a terrible thing or it could be a good thing. When I go, you know, I, I attend an Al-Anon program with my wife. A lot of people there are talking about getting off the roller coaster of a family member who's, you know, ad addicted and sort of learning how to stay in your own lane and not ride their roller coaster. You know, that's a, something that people talk about in 12-step programs uh, with family members who are, who are addicts, uh, who, are, who are dealing with the disease of alcoholism or something like that. I'm sorry if I'm not using the right verbiage. Um, so, uh, that could be a thing. On the other hand, it's just a basic reality that we will ride the highs and lows of the people around us because we love them. So it's not to be dependent is not in and of itself evil. There are versions of the dependent nature of relationships that are extremely positive part of life. And an essential truth of human nature is that we are dependent. And so we will we will experience through empathy, love, and the ties that connect us to other people, the highs and lows of what people go through around us. We may also at times experience that dependency as something maybe more negative, like a codependency and a like in a in a enabling, entangling, and destructive way. So I love that it just lays it out there. This is a cycle that could very well be about how we're also responding to the crises or the ups and downs that people are going through around us. That speaks to these cords, these scorpionic cords that bind us very deeply to other people. Now, remember, we're going to close with, oh, so by the way, I should, I'll just mention this. The changing, the changing line leads to a potential second hexagram. And I'll put this up too, so you can look at it. Hexagram 26, which is sometimes called uh, recharging power. And I'll just read you it really quick. I usually pay attention to the initial one and the changing line sort of primarily, but uh, the second one is important too. It's called Tao Chu. And I don't know if that's, I'm, I'm so sorry if I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but anyway, it's mountain above heaven below. And it has to do the, the taming power of the great perseverance further, not eating at home brings good fortune. It furthers one to cross, cross the great water to hold firmly to great creative powers and store them up. As set forth in this hexagram, there is need of a strong, clear-headed person who is uh, considered honorable by people who are maybe in higher positions of authority or power. The trigram chan points to strong creative power. Uh, Ken indicates firmness and truth. Bo both point toward light and clarity in the daily renewal of character. Only through such daily self-renewal can a person continue at the height of their power. Force of habit helps to keep order in quiet times, but in periods where there's great storing up of energy, everything depends on the power of personality. It's interesting. This, <clears throat> To me, this hexagram, one of the things it points to is the need to literally recharge something. To, okay, like for example, when, when there's maybe a lot of chaos in a scorpionic moon cycle, one of the things that this may be speaking to is there's going to be some wild ups and downs. Preserve your peace and make sure you're storing up reserves of power to go through a cycle like this. Take all of your best practices and make sure you're using them this cycle so that you have energy to ride the ups and downs that could come with it. Um, it's also talking about how, how do people persevere 
it's because they have uh, stored up mojo. And that's how you get through something. That's how you have to go through a period in which you're having to really dramatically adjust expectations or someone around you is riding the roller coaster or there are strong adjustments that have to be made. Um, some of the things we talked about earlier. I like that this cycle is also taking place. <clears throat> I'm going to bring in the last point now, which is Mars and Uranus. I like that the cycle is taking place with Mars opposite Uranus and the new moon opposite Uranus, because there's a symbol here of the breakthroughs happening, really important breakthroughs. Maybe they're your own, or maybe they're happening around you or in your relationships. But when those energies are there, you also need kind of inner resources to get through those periods because they, even if they're exciting and exhilarating, they can be draining. So I, I also get the feeling from this second hexagram that uh, we're going to need to be taking really good care of ourselves this cycle because this this energy is going to be demanding and we're going to have to persevere in a sense to work our way through it. It's a strong cycle. Mars and Uranus opposite the new moon also suggests to me that this cycle is going to be emotionally liberating. Going back to the idea that we're either liberating ourselves from the fear of moving towards something we desire because we tend to have some issues with uh, repression or there's a suppressive force. And so we say, nope, this is what I want. This is what I'm doing. I'm not going to be afraid to do it any longer. Or we get the feedback that something we want isn't going to work out or it isn't what we thought we were, or even worse, it's undermining us in some way and we have to adjust. Either way, we're going to need storehouses of energy to get through it. So there's a kind of like conserve and protect your, your peace and serenity and your mojo this month. Um, I think that's probably important. Be careful of leaky mental energy. Pay attention to signs and omens that are appearing around you as well, because there's probably a heightened sort of psychic sensitivity. All right. Well, anyway, I hope you enjoyed this kind of uh, scattering of symbolic seeds um, approach that we took today uh, and that you it helps you prepare for a powerful new moon, one of the most potent new moon cycles of the year. It's not every day you get a new moon in Scorpio opposite Uranus with Mars also opposite Uranus. So we should expect that the cycle ahead will um, be quite a powerful one. Anyway, that's it for today. I hope you guys uh, will uh, make good use of this. That you have a great weekend coming up here and we'll see you again soon. Bye everyone.